Well, folks, we're on our second week of the Trinity, and um, what I want to share with you this morning uh, might, it might be a little bit complex, but it really isn't, if you pay attention. <laughs> if you listen carefully and don't text or play video games, <laughs> you'll be able to catch everything I'm saying to you. Um, what, I'm, what I want to share with you is something that uh, I, I d- discovered believe it or not, just about uh, maybe five or six years ago. Gloria and I were away in October for our fall uh, retreat and um, always spend time in prayer together, lots of time in prayer, praying for all of you. And, um, and one of the other things I like to do is read. And so I'd gotten a hold of a, of a very interesting theology text written by a man by the name of Michael Heiser. And I gotta tell you that uh, it, it was just absolutely thrilling. It read to me like a novel. And whereas Gloria and I were supposed to be spending lots of time together, I found myself spending more time with Michael Heiser. But she, uh, but she quickly began to understand why I was enjoying it so much because we started reading together from the book. But um, uh, I want you just to pay close attention this morning because, because, as you know, we're talking about the Trinity. And the Trinity can be a very complex idea. Uh, it, well, no, it's not that it can be. It is. In fact, it's, it's, it's a mystery, and we really cannot get our brains around it. We, we three-dimensional people cannot comprehend, really, too much past those three dimensions. But um, suffice it to say that, that what I'm sharing with you is, is, is not really new in the sense that it's, it's not sort of new revelation. What it is, simply, is just, uh, just the most recent scholarship uh, that goes back uh, studying documents from two and three thousand years ago. So it's actually actually quite thrilling. So what I what am I what am I talking about? Well, let me begin by just sharing with you something that the Jewish people say every day in the morning and at night. It's called the Shema, and just read it with me. Here, okay, start again. Ready? Here, O Israel, God is our Lord. God is one. What it is, it's a declaration of, the, of their monotheism, their belief in one God. Now, it's really critical that you understand that, that we, as Christians, believe in the idea of one God. And, it, and you know that our roots are, in, in the, uh, obviously, in Judaism. We're born out of that. But understand that when we're talking about the Trinity, although it seems like we're talking about three gods, we're not talking about three gods. We're talking about one God, but we're talking about God in three persons. So the name of God, uh, you'll notice, is never written out. You notice there's a G dash D, and Lord is missing an O because we, in the Jewish faith, you never write, write out the full, the full name of God uh, in reverence to God. The idea that maybe that, that word could maybe be, after it's written out, could be thrown in the garbage or erased, uh, it just it speaks of irreverence. So they never, never want to write out the name of God or our Lord. Um, they recite this Shema in the morning and at night. In Deuteronomy 6.4, it commands it to declare, Hear, O Israel, God our Lord, God is one. It summarizes the monotheistic essence of Judaism. And I'm going to tell you, in Christianity, in the Christian faith, we believe the same. We do not believe that there are three gods. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. 
I always wondered how, how is it that, that Jewish Christians, not the Christians of, of Rome or the Gentiles who became Christians, because they had a multitude of gods and the idea of a trinity would be something that they really wouldn't think too much about. They may not fully understand it, they may not understand uh, that God is still one, but it's the Jewish Christians. How could they believe this? How could John, for instance, write something like this? And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Now, logically, when you read that, that doesn't seem to really add up because what's, what's being said here? Well, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity and you don't try to impose your own ideas on that passage of Scripture, you can only come to one conclusion. John is clearly saying that Jesus Christ is God. And the fellowship with God the Father, you are fellowshipping with God the Son. So how is it that, that John, a disciple of Jesus, could come to this conclusion? How is it that they could embrace this this truth and embrace it so richly. And you know, there's, there are disputes in the New Testament between believers, especially uh, between Paul and Peter and the uh, Christian leaders in Jerusalem. They were uh, against Paul and Paul's teaching that Gentiles could be saved. That was, just, that was one, of the, the, one of the big councils and one of the big debates. And thankfully, the apostle Paul won that debate. But this is, a, this is an issue that's never debated. And again, I wonder, why is that? How could that be? Well, uh, this is where Michael Heiser comes in. Um, Michael Heiser uh, is a a scholar. uh, He knows Hebrew forward and backward. Uh, He is a a scholar in the the Near Eastern studies. Uh, He is able to delve into ancient Sumerian writings and so on and so forth. Well, he came across a book by a Jewish scholar by the name of Alan F. Siegel. And uh, Alan F. Siegel writes a book called Two Powers in Heaven. And uh, the subtitle there, Early Rabbinic Reports About Christianity and Gnosticism. This uh, Alan Siegel is not a believer, he's not a Christian. However, he does point out something that actually supports what we believe as Christians. 25 years ago, when he wrote this book, uh, he argued that, that the Jewish people believed in the two powers in heaven. This two powers, in, uh, this two powers idea was in full bloom uh, in 200 BC. He was able to trace it back to that time. And the Jewish people would have believed and understood that there are, in fact, two powers in heaven. There was Yahweh, and, and there was Yahweh. They were the same person, but they were different. There was God in spirit, and there was God who would manifest himself in the person of Christ. That does not say he's, he's two people, but he is one, and he manifests himself sometimes at the same time. It blows your mind away. Now, in the second century AD, the, the Jewish rabbis and scholars understood that, that this understanding of Scripture would actually damage their faith and would support Christianity. And so they, they, they 
made a declaration, we do not believe in this anymore, but you need to understand that for at least three or 400 years, this was a, a prominent teaching uh, amongst the Jewish people. We call it the second temple, second temple theology or second temple teaching. So the Israelites, they knew that there were in fact uh, two Yahwehs, one invisible, a spirit, and the other visible, often in human form. Now if anybody's read the Old Testament, you know that you've come across what we might call Christophanies, that's appearances of Christ. In fact, Siegel himself points out uh, a passage of scripture in Daniel, Daniel 7, 13. And Daniel says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man, as Siegel says clearly, it's the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approaches the Ancient of Days. How many know that the Ancient of Days is another name for Yahweh? And this, this, this one who is like the Son of Man is led into the presence of the Ancient of Days. Now, this is not an anomaly, this passage of Scripture. We read in Daniel chapter 3, some of you know the story very well, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bend to the will of the king. They refused to worship anyone other than God, and they're thrown into the, into the furnace, the fiery furnace. In fact, the furnace was so hot, the Bible says, that the soldiers who threw these guys into the furnace, they died because of the heat. When the king looked into the furnace... He saw not only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but as, the, as, as it says in, in Daniel 3, he saw a fourth person who was like the Son of God. So, is it just in Daniel? No. There's many, many places where we see this language being used. When, when Jacob blessed uh, uh, the sons of Joseph, he, ref he, he, he uses that language the, 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 were, were what we would call the two powers of heaven. We see Moses coming face to face with that. We see Abraham coming face to face with that reality. Uh, Samuel comes face to face with that reality. David in Psalm chapter two, you, we don't have time to, to introduce all those verses. I wish we could, but you need to look at that yourself. Clearly, clearly, uh, David in, in Psalm 2, and I wish I had time to read through that, is introducing this idea of the Father and the Son. So we recognize then that the idea that there is a, a trinity or more than one personality, one, more than one person in the Godhead, it was actually had its roots in Judaism. It was an idea that predates Christianity. So then we move ahead to the New Testament, to the New Testament times. And I want to just begin by, uh, by sharing with you a verse, I think it's the very first verse that I ever memorized, and it's John 3, 16. How many remember this verse? How many, how many would say this is the first verse they ever memorized? And going, that's the first verse I ever memorized. So if you, if you know it, close your eyes and say it. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's, that's right from the King James, the Bible that Jesus used. <laughs> now, I love the idea that if I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I would have eternal life. But the thing that I didn't understand, and I didn't really, to be honest, I didn't trouble myself about it because I was a child and I thought, well, someday I'll figure this out. 
But the question I had is, how on earth could God have a son? If God had a son, who was his wife? That was, that was the way, isn't that, well, is, I'm, I'm like you, you're like me. We, that seems like a, a reasonable question. How could God the Father have a son unless he had a wife? And who is that wife? Now, some religious traditions, I'm not going to mention them, but they would talk about Mary as the mother of God. And they would enshrine her as being, listen to this, the, the, uh, the last pope, John Paul, before Benedict, he called Mary the co-redemptrix with Christ. In other words, she, she was just as much a part of the redemption of humanity as Jesus Christ. And of course, we would say that is heresy. We believe that our faith is in Jesus Christ alone, and nowhere in Scripture does it tell us to put our faith in Mary. I hope that doesn't offend you, but I would challenge you. If that's the tradition you come from, I would challenge you to read the Scripture, and you're not going to find anything in the Scripture that talks about redemption coming through Mary. It comes through God's only begotten Son. Now, the, the question is this. What does that mean, the begotten Son? Did anybody really know what that meant? I remember asking all kinds of people, what does begotten mean? I don't know. Nobody, nobody could really answer that. And there's a reason you can't answer it, because we, for, for a long time, we didn't really understand what it meant. Now, if you look at that word in the Greek, uh, monogeny, here's what you're going to discover. It actually means only kind. It means the only kind or unique. So when it talks about the begotten son, it's not so much talking about Jesus' origin so much as it's talking about what he is or who he is. As Listen to this. Watch this. This is really cool. As Yahweh is unique, so the son is unique. This is really what we're being told here, that the son is unique in the sense that he is not like, he's not like anyone else or anything else and certainly is not a creation. Really important to understand that. He is unique, as Yahweh is unique. In case you don't know who Yahweh is, that's the Old Testament name for, for the one that we call our Father in Heaven. Now, the question is this. God loved the world um, so much that he sent his only begotten son, his and, and by the way, most modern translation, they call him the only son, which I think is probably better and less confusing. But I would like to call him, gave his unique son, because it points to the fact that Jesus, as a son, is not like, like, uh, like me as a son. This morning, I got a, a, a photograph from my brother, my dad, Carrie, my dad, my brother, Carrie, and Jesse were working at, on a job site last night till, well, well, Jesse got home at midnight. But he, my brother this morning sent me a picture. My dad, the father, the son, Carrie. <laughs> I, I don't think I can call Jesse the Holy Ghost. But anyway, uh, <laughs> although he was dressed in white. but uh, So Jesus is not a son in the sense that I am a son to Lyle Duncalf or a son to, to, uh, to Diane. Jesus was unique. He was not like, like us in the sense that, that I'm a son to my dad. But he was a son in the sense that 
He was a partner with God. And again, it's really important, and I haven't got time to get into it, but it's important to understand in, in those times the idea of a father and a son. A son represented his father as though the father were there himself. But again, the question, why did God send Jesus to this earth? Well, you could say, well, because he loved, loved us. Yeah, but there's lots of ways that God could show us that he loved us. As Rectavia and Fiddler on the Roof would say, why didn't you just give me lots of money? <laughs> that, that, that would really prove to me how much you love me. But here's, here's what you need to know. You need to understand what we really need. And I know some of you are thinking this morning, but Pastor Ellen, I really do need money. Well, guess what? There's something that you need even more, even more than good health. What you need is you need someone to pay the death penalty that you deserve. It's Pastor Allen, well, how could you say that about me? I'm a, I'm a good person. Hey, when I hear somebody say to me, I'm a good person, here's what I know. You have not yet come face to face with your own nature. You have not, you have not embraced reality in any way. The Apostle Paul, who would be considered one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, said, I am the chief of sinners. So if you think you're better than Paul, then get writing a book and let's get it into the Bible. The Apostle Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. What does Paul know that a lot of us don't understand? Paul understood the wicked condition of his heart. And I have to, I have to put myself right up there with, with Paul. I would say, no, I'm the most wicked person who ever lived and you would say no oh it's just only patrick and janet are wicked <laughs> the rest just the three of us hey let me say it one more time no hey listen listen when it comes right down to us we're not we're not comparing ourselves to other people but we're recognizing our need of christ if you don't understand your sinful inclinations then you don't understand your need of a savior. So this is why God sent Jesus to this earth. Because the fact of the matter is, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 63, all of us have been infected. Did you get that? I love the way, I love the way, the way it says it in the NLT. We are all infected with sin, every one of us. If you were born on if you're born of a man and a woman here on earth, then you are infected with sin. You've got what we call that sin nature. That's why, that's why God had to send Jesus, because there's a death penalty on all of our heads. Look what it says here in Genesis chapter 2. And some of you have heard me say this more than once, that the only way that you're going to truly understand the Scripture is by, by knowing Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 2, but here's, here's the death penalty being pronounced before anybody has any ever disobeyed God. But the Lord God warned Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. This is the death penalty. There's one law in the, in, in the, in the Old Testament, we're, we have over 600 laws, but in the Garden of Eden, we have one law. Just obey God. And to obey God, it's an act of faith. It's an act of trust. God knows what's best for us. God loves us. And so I'm going to just do what he says. How many know that nothing really has changed? How many know today that God loves us? 
And any law that he has given us, any rule, any instruction that he's given to us is for our good. Does everybody understand that today? It's not because God is a cosmic party pooper. God does not want to want to to bring your happiness levels down. He wants rather to increase your happiness and your joy. In fact, he wants you to have, and we see this over and over again in the New Testament, he wants us to have peace and joy. But the only way that you can have that peace and joy, the way that Adam and Eve had peace and joy, is that you have to trust God, and you trust God. The evidence that you trust God is that you obey him. Did you get that? That's what faith is. Believe God and do what he says. The evidence that I trust God, that I have faith in what he tells me to do is that I obey him and do do what he says. So why did God have to send Jesus to this earth? Because somebody's got to pay this death penalty. What kind of a law, a legal system would it be if the judge just arbitrarily decided, "Yeah, yeah, I know you killed somebody, but hey, it was a bad day, you were... You know, you weren't feeling well. You know, your wife barked at you. You were on edge. You, you know, you killed somebody. Oh, well. You would, you would, like, want to move out of the country. In fact, that's why a lot of people leave some third-world countries, because there is no law, no order, and it becomes now an unsafe place to live. That's why people want to come to North America. How long we'll have a safe and just society, I don't know. We call it the rule of law. Wherever there is a lack of the rule of law, then you have chaos. So we understand that God's justice is, is not something evil or bad or something that's unpalatable. It's for our good. It's for our safety. It's, it's good for us. It's wonderful. In fact, the justice of God speaks of his love for us. Does everybody understand that? So there's this death penalty hanging over our head. Now here's where some people who are not Christians start criticizing Christianity, and they say, what kind of a God would kill his own son? Well, okay, you know what? You don't even know what the Bible says. You don't understand it. You don't understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The fact is, folks, is that God himself The Son himself, who is God himself, has come to take the penalty that he pronounced. Did you get that? The Father pronounces the penalty of death, and then Yahweh the Son says, I'm coming to pay that penalty. This is unbelievable. And again, the words of John come to mind. Behold, what manner of love the Father has shown unto us. What kind of love is this? We, we disobey God. We don't trust him. We don't have faith in him. We hate God. We hate others. And yet God, in his great love, sends his son, Yahweh, the second power of heaven, to come and die on the cross for our sins. Who can get their brain around that? That's what the hymn writer was writing about when he said, amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, would die for me. Think about that. Let the Spirit of God minister to your heart right now. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, should come and die for me? 
You need to know, my friends, who the Son is. The Son is Yahweh, who, who, is, who appears time and again in the Old Testament and then finally comes, and as it says in John chapter one, he comes and he pitches his tent among us. He comes to live among us. Now for many of us, we think that all that Jesus did is he came to die for us, but he didn't just come to die for us, he came to live for us. He came to show us how to live. And if you wanted to summarize it in a line, the way to live is to obey the Father. That's, that's the way to live. That's the way that Jesus showed us to live. Jesus says, I have to do what my Father does. And then Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. What's Jesus saying? Jesus saying, hey folks, I wanna take you back to Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three were kicked out of Eden because of their sin? Kicked out, of, look, you need to understand what's going on here. They're not just kicked out of a nice garden. It's not like the garden at Assiniboine Park where they got flowers in the spring or, or to try to have flowers in the spring. We're not talking about that kind of a garden. When we talk about the Garden of Eden, I'm gonna tell you that Garden of Eden is full of mystery and I love, I've been studying it now for I don't know how many years because it's a thrilling idea. The whole scripture starts in Genesis, or in Genesis, it starts in the Garden of Eden, and when you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation, it ends in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you noticed that, but you need to go look that up. But here's what you need to know. Jesus is able to walk right past those cherubim with the fiery swords that are guarding entrance back into Eden. Why? Because Jesus was perfect without sin. Did you get that? That is why Jesus' sacrifice at the cross was able to stand for you and for me because Jesus was completely without sin. And it's for this reason that Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Jesus could not have the DNA of his father and, and of an earthly father and an earthly mother. He had to be born without that sin nature. Now watch this, this is incredible. Because when Jesus was born and became a man, he was exactly the same as Adam was before he sinned. And this is why, this is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 45, speak about Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam made a decision. This is without the sin nature. Remember, you and I have a sin nature. This, it's, it's hopeless for us. We, we, we cannot live a perfect life. It's too late. I mean, look at it. You, you, remember I talked about the little baby who's so sweet and so beautiful? We call him, what, a little cherub. And then by age two, the, the cherub has got the brandishing sword. I'm gonna kill you all. Born with a sin nature. Can't even talk it, but knows how to exert himself or herself in a way that makes you think, yes, I do believe in original sin. <laughs> now listen to this, folks. Jesus, Jesus was like Adam when Adam was created by God. Adam made a decision. Adam and Eve made a decision. 
Without, without, this, without the sin nature that we inherited from them. It, we got the sin nature from Adam and Eve after they sinned against God. And we know that that sin nature took off because by Genesis 4, their firstborn sons killing their next son. Cain kills Abel and all hell's broken loose. But Jesus comes along, no sin. Exactly the way Adam and Eve were. Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobeying him. Jesus, on the other hand, does not. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan in the garden. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert. You see this? You see the parallels? It's important to see this. Adam and Eve in the garden, surrounded with beauty, surrounded with everything they could ever want, they disobeyed God. Jesus in the desert has nothing, no water to drink, no food to eat. If anybody should have sinned, if anybody should have given into temptation, it should have been Jesus, right? Because Jesus, Satan was giving Jesus exactly what he wants. Let the Spirit of God speak to you now because that's exactly what Satan's going to do to you and has been doing to you your whole life. He's been whispering in your ear and he's been telling you, you can't trust God, don't trust God. Trust, just do what you know you need to do. How many know that when you do what you think you know you need to do, that's when you get into the biggest trouble? And everybody said, yeah, you know exactly what I'm saying. Jesus said, no, I'm not giving in, for it is written. What the first Adam couldn't do, Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the second Adam did do. Wow. What is, uh, what, is Jesus, what is Jesus doing here? Here, look at this. This is so incredible. God created Adam and Eve in the first place for fellowship. Did you know that? That's how much, that's how much God loves us. He created us for fellowship for relationship with him. You know how I always say that this life is all about relationship? It's all about relationship to God and relationship to one another. That's all there is. Everything else is, is superfluous. This life is about relationship to God and relationship to one another. So when we read uh, John 3.16, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What is, what, is, what is Jesus saying? God loves us so much, he wants to get us all back into Eden. He wants to get us all back into that place where we have fellowship with the Father once again. That's what this is about. It's not just about escaping hell, because that's what so many people are. Man, thank God I, I said the sinner's prayer, and now I'm not going to go to hell. That, that's a, a small little bit of the picture. The majority of this picture, people, is about you and I, once again, being in Eden. And Eden, if, in case you don't know, Eden represents the very presence of Almighty God. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says those who have put their faith in Christ can come boldly to the throne of, uh, throne of God with all their prayer requests and their needs. What's he saying? We, we are back in Eden again through Christ. And someday, someday, when we are given new bodies, we will inhabit that new Eden that we, we read about in Revelation. But I'm going to tell you, this eternal life that Jesus is talking about, it begins now for all who put their faith in Christ. It begins 
right here and right now. You and I are already experiencing a taste of Eden. That is, if you put your faith in Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, well, this is, you're on the outside looking in. I'm, I'm trying to pretend I'm looking through a glass with my nose squished up. 25 years of ministry will do that to you. <laughs> Jesus wants you to be back into the presence of Almighty God. He wants you to enjoy fellowship with the Father. I'm going to tell you, folks, this is really what it means to be a follower of Christ, is that you are in fellowship with God on a regular basis. This is why, listen to this, this is why in our church, in so many evangelical churches, our church is not known for external religious practices. There's, there's, we don't do a lot of this and, and all that. Our faith is internalized. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of my heart connecting with the heart of God. We don't go through rituals. We don't go through routines and formulas. It's not an external faith. It's internal. It's our hearts connecting to the heart of God. And every religion that is external in nature, that is where you go through all the religious exercise and you, you march through the streets and you hold the icon and you kiss the that and you cross the that and you kneel on this and stand up here. And all of that is a form of godliness that, that, that denies the power of Almighty God who wants to dwell richly within us. Let me ask you the question, do you have that kind of a relationship with God today? Is your heart one with the heart of God? Because that, my friends, is what God wants. That's how much he loves us. He sent his son to restore us, to fellowship with him, that we could enjoy, look at this, that we could enjoy eternal life. Can I just remind you of something? This eternal life, some, some of you think this is reserved for us when we die. I'm going to tell you, the minute you became a believer, you entered into eternal life. You have already begun to experience heaven. You don't know that yet. But this is clearly what this is teaching us. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 10.10. 10, when, when, what does he say? The thief comes to rob and kill and destroy, but I've come, what? That you might have love, might have life, how? Abundantly. Or in the NLT, rich and satisfied. Rich and fulfilled. That's the life that God wants you to have. This is the taste of the Garden of Eden. Where all your needs are met. Where God, God is, you have free access to the Father. C.S. Lewis said an interesting thing. He said his view of hell, is, uh, his understanding of hell is really quite uh, really quite different than what a lot of people understand. He says worse than hellfire is the idea that once you, once you are in hell, you will never have access to the Father ever again. He said, to, he said, to me, that is more terrifying than anything that I could ever imagine. Imagine that. Never, ever, ever, ever having access to Eden ever again never having access to the throne of God ever again, never having the forgiveness of sin, never having peace in your heart, never knowing the joy of the Lord. 
That, says C.S. Lewis, is the most terrifying thought. Jesus, the Son, has come to this earth to die for us, to pay the penalty of our sin. But that's not where it ends. That's where it begins. And all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, as evidenced by your obedience, have entered into eternal life. And you begin to experience the life that Jesus wants all of us to have. Have you, had, have, you, have you entered into that life yet? No, I mean really entered into that life. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I had a Bible college teacher say, this is where the rubber meets the road. Another teacher say, this is the bottom line. Let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the point, and here's the point. It is impossible to call yourself a Christ follower if you're not living in obedience to Christ. There's a lot of people, and this terrifies me in the year 2019, who say, I am a Christian, but their life resembles nothing of Christ. You cannot be a follower of Jesus if you are not living like Jesus. Let's stand together. Father, thank you. Thank you that the Father loved us so much. Yahweh loved us so much that he sent Yahweh in human form to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty that that we deserved. But then it didn't stop there. He came to give us eternal life, to give us readmittance into Eden, into the very presence of Almighty God to enjoy fellowship. And that God is what we were created for. That's where we find our purpose in life. That's where we find meaning in life. When we are, once again, reunited with the Father who created us. In fact, your word tells us that we bear the very image of God. We are God-like. Help us, we pray, O God, to surrender and to submit to Jesus Christ, to live the life that Jesus showed us how to live. And there is our joy, and there is our peace. There is our comfort. And we thank you, Father, that this gift is ours through Christ. I pray today, Lord, that everybody here, everybody here will make that decision and come to that place of full surrender to God. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Amen. Tell the person beside you, go follow